You're listening to the Safety Work Podcast, episode 49. Today we're asking the question, what exactly is a peer-reviewed journal paper? Let's get started. Hey everybody, my name's David Proven and I'm here with Drew Ray and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast. In each episode, we ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety, and we examine the evidence surrounding it. And we've got something a little bit different for today. So Drew, what's today's question? David, today's question comes courtesy of listener Tony. I was chatting to Tony offline. He pointed out that even though we try to base each episode off one or more peer-reviewed journal papers or journal articles, we, and we, we actually, I think, did an episode on how to find and access the papers, but we never really explained what a peer-reviewed journal paper is. And so that's really what this episode is, is we just thought that we'd do a frequently asked question about academic journals, how they work, how stuff gets published, and what practitioners should read into stuff they find based on the publishing process. Drew, um, are we going to dive straight in and start talking about what a journal is? Yeah, we'll try to make it an evidence-based discussion as we usually do. Uh, I haven't actually pulled out any particular bits of research here, um, but there, there are, is some research on quality of peer review that we'll mention partway through. So let, let's start with the absolute basics. What is a journal? Journals are a really archaic part of academia. And to understand them, you sort of got to go back to when there were only a few like gentlemen scientists talking to each other. And the way we published stuff was by sending each other letters or by getting together as groups and someone would keep minutes of the society meetings and publish those. Dave, do you reckon your letters and papers are ever going to sort of make it into the scientific record? No, I don't think so. But, um, you know, as much as we like to think now we're, we're creating new knowledge and we're understand, understanding new things about the world, there was certain times as part of the scientific revolution where it would have been, um, you know, quite interesting times to be involved in some of those uh, societal gatherings. Some of the names of people who were there at the same time and same place, just getting together to chat about their work would have been amazing. But the trouble is we're well beyond that time. There are just too many people doing different types of science. And as the number grew, they sort of had to put in place a bit of a more formal process of sharing information for people who weren't at the meetings. So rather than everyone comes along to the meeting and the people who don't read the minutes, we have a process where people actually submit papers in, they mail stuff in to the meeting, and then it gets mailed out again, like a newspaper telling you about the latest work that's been sent in. And only some people would actually get invited to present the work at the meeting. It was actually really controversial the very first time someone asked for a second opinion and said, yeah, I'm not going to send this out for everyone. I'm going to get someone else to look at it first. So that was like the first instance of peer review. And the scientists got absolutely up in arms that the editor would dare send, sort of send his work for checking. It was like inhibiting free speech to not be able to broadcast to everyone. Um, but you know, obviously, as we get more and more people doing it, we've got to have some sort of quality process in place. And in particular, the number grows beyond the fact that we can even have something like the Royal Society, and that's where all science happens. We have to have specialist societies for each topic, and then they break into specialist societies, and they break into specialist societies. 
you sort of think of where safety sits. It's kind of like the fourth tier of an engineering hierarchy or the fourth tier of a social science hierarchy that has split and split and split until safety became a topic that had its own journals. I mean, obviously, once you get lots of journals, you can no longer just as an individual just subscribe to the journal for your society because it's got to have been published, could have been published by any number of different societies. So instead, what we have is we have whole libraries that collect the journals together. And so if you go to a university library, often it's not in a part now that's publicly accessible. It's called the stacks, just sort of rows and rows of shelves filled with these journals that get sent out each month. And then the library collates them into binders. And it used to be that most libraries had their own sort of binding service to collate the monthly journals together. And you can just go to like you know, April of 1980 and there's a binder for each journal published in that month. Yeah, Drew, I think it's been a it's been a very long time since I've pulled out a manual issue of a journal, probably, oh, gee, undergraduate psychology in the 90s. And now I suppose you don't actually physically pick up, well, I, I don't anyway, I don't physically pick up journal issues very often. Is that something you still do? Do you still get mailed out hard copy journals? Sometimes now when I publish a paper, they'll send you just that issue of the journal that your thing got published in. But yeah, I, I still sort of think fondly just because it kind of dates me in the academic genealogy of doing my PhD and having any time I found a paper, you could look up the catalogues online. So you could sit at your desk and find a reference to the paper, but then you'd need to wander the shelves and find the right volume and pull it down and take it to the photocopy machine. And often these were like dusty binders that no one else had ever opened since they were bound. It was really quite, I don't know, very sort of traditional, I guess, experience very time consuming to find each individual paper. And now they're just all on, um, I suppose for our listeners, now they're just all on, on you know, web searches. We spoke in the episode that we did, I think it might've been 34, we spoke about how to find and access research. And now you can look at databases or even Google Scholar and just find the references, go straight to the website of the journal and get access to the paper all in one sort of, in one step. Yeah, very often you don't even need to know which journal it's in. You just follow a link from one of these databases and the paper appears in front of you. But pretty much every journal has its own website. And its website is just like a factory. It's got a space for authors to put stuff in. It's got a space the journal pushes stuff out again and makes it accessible to the databases. And then it's got a whole lot of back-end software that runs all of the checking and processing that turn things from author's submissions into published articles. So you mentioned that there's many, many journals now in, in all sorts of different disciplines, like even in safety, we've mentioned probably four or five major journals, but there's there's dozens of, of minor and open access journals as well. Who owns and runs all of these journals? So all of the old journals started off as owned by royal societies, but it's really expensive to run just one journal and it's very profitable to run a thousand journals. So what happened was some big publishing houses just started, they started off just sort of like offering it as a service. Here, we'll take it off your hands and run it for you. And the societies just said like, great, you know, our journal still works. It's still got the same editorial staff. Just someone else is looking after all of the expenses for us. This is fantastic. But then over time, that just sort of process got to the point where it became a really big business. Um, so there are one or two publishing houses that own most journals now. I'm not going to particularly pick on names, um, except I will say that most of the safety ones happen to be owned by a company called Elsevier. 
when people are complaining about big publishing houses, Elsevier tends to be the name that they pick on. Uh, but there's not really much to choose between them. And I think the main complaint, Drew, I suppose, would be just the cost of accessing that scientific knowledge, particularly for practitioners who maybe don't have subscriptions and um, and access. I think that's that's probably the major complaint I'd suggest. Yeah, I'm going to be honest, though, and say that most of the complaint doesn't really come from practitioners. It comes from academics complaining about the fact that they do the work to produce the papers. They get asked to do the work to be editors and peer reviewers. And then their universities need to pay to access the papers <laughs> that they have just written. And very often all of that money comes from government grants. So this is stuff that really should be owned by the people because it's been paid for by the people, but is in fact owned by the publishing house. Yeah, look, and I think we've seen a very similar thing in the last decade or so with access to here in Australia to Australian standards, which is the obviously Australian version of, you know, our, our listeners overseas might think of ISO standards or DIN standards or, you know, API standards or anything like that. And we've only just now started to look at sort of democratising the access to some of those Australian standards, whereas traditionally it was, like you said, Drew, people sat on committees that was all funded by government and then there was a private company who was able to charge access to them. Yes, yeah, so, so there's two movements that I think are fairly relevant to practitioners. The first one is the idea of open access. And so that's where the author pays the journal to make the stuff available. And then once it's published, anyone can access it for free. So that's just sort of a shifting of cost from the end user to the person producing it. I mean, David, I think you've done that with a couple of your papers, is actually paid for them to be made available to the public. Yeah, look, I think we definitely definitely did that with with one. I mean, it was um, I mean, it's not cheap process as an author. You know, it might have been you know a couple of thousand US dollars or three three or so thousand US dollars. That just means you've got obviously anyone can access it. It can be used for any purpose. Um, it you know it's funny, but even as the author of a paper, like you said, Drew, once you sign over the rights to a um, to a journal to publish it, then you're really really restricted on even as an author what you can do with that paper. So yeah, that's just a way, paying for open access is just a way of making sure that it can be sort of freely shared and accessed by anyone. But the other thing that's been happening, and this is why we talk about reputable journals, is that there are so many authors, particularly very young authors, sort of new to their studies, who are wanting to get things published, that there are a number of publishing houses that have been set up basically just to prey on those young people. So they charge them a fee in order to publish their work, but their work doesn't receive proper peer review or publishing services. So, you know, the really big publishing houses, in a sense, they are very predatory. They're sort of sitting on top of the system, taking away money, but they are providing a genuine service and your stuff genuinely does get edited and peer reviewed. But then there's a lot of less reputable journals that don't provide any of those services that still try to charge authors money in order to publish their work. So I suppose we've, we've, we've been through what a journal is and a little bit, but you just started there talking about the high-level process of publishing. So let's talk about that publishing process. Um, how, do things get, how do things get published in journals? What does that process look like? Okay, so the first thing which a lot of people don't actually understand is that there are no limits on who can submit stuff to journals. So any of our listeners today could submit a paper to Safety Science. You don't have to belong to a university. You don't have to have an academic approve it. You don't have to have any rules about it. You just go to the website for safety science, click on the link for authors, and there's an online form that you fill out and you attach your paper and it's submitted to the journal. 
Sometimes you'll find really old journals where you have to email it to the person or you have to put in a very special file format with particular types of referencing. But most places now, you format the paper however you like, you use whatever referencing system you like, and you just submit it. That goes to journal staff who check that you filled out the form correctly. Uh, they throw out stuff that is total, total rubbish, as in like in totally the wrong language. Or, you know, it doesn't even look like an academic paper. It's really just a spam email. That then goes to the editor who does a sort of genuine quality check. Um, look, read, they'll usually read the paper or read some of the paper and make sure that it's written in decent English. They'll check that it matches the journal and hasn't been sent to the wrong place by mistake. And they'll now send it to an associate editor. That's the job I have is I'm an associate editor for a journal called Safety Science. The, the associate editor reads the paper in its entirety. So that's your sort of first level of peer review is an associate editor will read it. And then they'll either do a thing called desk reject, which is basically they'll say, based off this one peer review, I'm not going to let it through to the journal. So the associate editors have a fair bit of power to say what goes in or what goes out. They'll then send it to reviewers. And those reviewers are just people who are picked by the associate editor who thinks they would make good reviewers for that paper. Sometimes it'll be because the associate editor knows them or knows their work. Or we've got our own sort of secret search engines for potential reviewers that different keywords go in. And there are AI systems to try to identify who would make good reviewers based on the content of the paper. So Drew, you mentioned desk reject there. What's the sort of, as an associate editor like yourself at Safety Science, what, what's the sort of rate, rate of where... Of, of papers that you at first pass reject versus sort of send out for further peer review? So as safety science would get around between two and 3,000 submissions every year. Of those, about 10%, I think, get rejected by the editor. And of the ones that go to the associate editors, it depends a little bit on the associate editor and sort of uh, we each sort of have our own domain and you get different ratios of good stuff to unpublishable stuff in each domain. Um, but typically it'd be about somewhere between 20% and 10% of papers get sent out for peer review. So in terms of, 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 of everything that gets sent through to safety science, there's somewhere between 10 and 20% that actually go out for the peer review. Yes. For the first two filters. Yep. Yes. And, and the others come back with a short message to the author uh, saying that it doesn't really fit the scope of the journal or would be better sent to a conference than a journal or with some brief reasons just why it would not make it through peer review. And so then you um, do your secret search in your database for, I don't know, safety culture or one of your associate editors might search something like safety professional and turn up with my name or something like that. And then you send it out to how many how many reviewers do you send it to and, and what's kind of the process that they do? So different journals have got different numbers of reviews that they need to make a decision. Um, the aim at something like safety science, which is fairly common across safety, is to aim for two decent quality reviews. Very often we'll need to solicit many more reviews than that. So reviewers can say, no, I'm too busy and not review. Or reviewers can say, yes, I'll do it, but then they never get back to you. Or very often reviewers just send back reviews which are too short or too nasty just to be useful. And so we need to send it out again. Yeah, the aim is that you will get two or three people who have 
put sort of decent, reasonable comments on each paper. And then for our listeners, um, these are typically double-blind processes in peer-reviewed journals. So the the reviewers don't know who the authors are and the authors then, when the reviews come back, the authors don't know who the reviewers were. Although there is a lot of guessing that goes on. Um, safety is a fairly narrow community. You can very often guess who has written a paper based just on the topic. You, you cannot, We often have stabs at who we think the peer reviewers are. Dave, how often do you sort of think you've been pretty sure who's been making the comments? Yeah, a, a few times. Um, not so much because I don't know the the the, ne- the academic network as, as well, Drew. But one of the dead giveaways is when uh, a reviewer will come back and tell you that um, there's three or four things that you should cite, and all of those three or four things that they think you should make a citation of all have a common author through those three or four recommendations that they they suggest. Um, and then it might give you a bit of an idea that the uh, reviewer thinks that um, you should be up, upping their citation count. Yeah, it's always a tricky one because, you know, obviously if it's been sent to the expert in the field and you haven't cited them, it's fairly legitimate to say, look, maybe you haven't cited the experts in the field. But much more often than not, there's a little bit of a game that people are offended that you haven't referred to their work. So, So each reviewer makes a bunch of comments. And in most journals, they're asked to give an explicit recommendation ranging from reject to major revisions, minor revisions, or accept the paper as is. Um, I'll tell you as an editor, every time I send it to a reviewer and they come back saying accept the paper as is, I basically need to throw out the review and find another one because there's no piece of work that you can read thoroughly and not at least find some reasonable things to say. Yeah, and then Drew, so so they all come back and so you'll you'll get your two reviews back as an associate editor and you'll fire back a... You'll, you'll have to make a recommendation then because you, you might have two reviews that have one says, you know, major rejection, one, sorry, one says major sort of corrections, one might say minor corrections. So you've still got to make a d- decision about what you do with that paper. Yeah, so I'll, I'll read the reviews and I will forward those to the author. And if there's something that's a bit confusing, like if one of them has said, this is fantastic, and the other has given three pages full of comments, then I'll send a little bit of a steer to the author saying what to focus on. Or if there has been a contradiction, I'll, you know, tell the authors, hey, there is this contradiction here and give them some guidance as to what I expect from them. You know, I might tell them, you know, you you need to address both of these, but you obviously can't agree with both of them. Or I might tell them, look, I agree with this person. (laughs) Or sometimes a reviewer will say something that's fair, but still a bit harsh. And so I'll say, look, I'd like you to answer this, but it's really quite acceptable for you to answer just with no. Yeah, I think, and we, and so then I suppose there's a rinse and repeat thing. So, so the comments go back to the author. The author then makes all of the updates to the paper, and then typically will have a table at the front of their resubmission with here are all the comments, and here are the things that you know we have done as authors to address in relation to each of the comments. And that process can just go, I suppose, go round and round and round until there's a conclusion. And that can happen many, many times. I think we we talked about a paper on one of the earliest podcasts maybe episode 10 on the, the authority to stop work. And I think the submission of that paper with um, Dr. Weber and, and Sean McGregor, Drew, took us about two years from the first submission to the journal to publishing. Yeah, it's not supposed to take that long, but it can. Sometimes if a paper hasn't sort of advanced satisfactory between reviews, then the editor will just make a call and will tell the reviewers, 
look, I need you either to accept this paper or reject it. You, you can't just keep making comments on it. But sometimes you just have a fundamental disagreement between the authors and the reviewers that can't be reconciled. Authors aren't obliged to accept every review comment. They can just basically write back to the reviewers and explain why they don't agree or why they're not going to do anything. But if the reviewers don't accept that and the editor isn't willing to sort of step in and make a call either way, the paper can just get stuck and eventually the authors need to review it or the reviewers need to reject it. So the peer review process that we've talked about there, we, you know, so you talked about having a sort of a database and, and, and you know that you know the um the domain that you sort of get papers sent in and you know who the people are who can review certain topics. But how does that peer review process work? And and what's in it for the peer reviewer and 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 how how can people get who gets involved in peer review? Well, David, you've done peer review. What what sort of big rewards did we give you when you reviewed papers? Well, I think on the well <laughs> So there's, there's a couple of a couple of things that I think there's um there's the intrinsic there's the intrinsic reward which is that you are supporting the maintenance of a certain level of quality in papers that are being published into the kind of what's perceived to be the evidence based in journals. So so doing your part to sort of uphold a standard of quality in research I think is the important intrinsic motivator. I'm not sure there's too many um sort of um, extrinsic ones you do you do get sent a really nice kind uh thank you from um Elsevier with like one month subscription to the database if you don't have university library access so if you did do a peer review you could go in in the next 30 days and download a whole lot of papers for um for free as a result of doing the review and that in itself might be a a good reward for someone to do a couple of peer reviews a year yeah i think there are some people who just do one peer review a month to maintain their journal access from Elsevier or Springer. Yeah, I have to say that sort of doing your service for the community is a tricky one. I've spoken to a number of other editors about this, and I've met no one who enjoys playing gatekeeper. We all feel really guilty about rejecting papers because every paper involves lots of work from the author. And we feel really uncomfortable with the fact that to keep the system working, we have to have the power that we can just say yes or no and stop things even going from peer review. It's sort of what the system needs to work, but it really is incredibly unfair that you, someone sends six months on a project, comes to my desk, I spend 30 minutes and have the power to just say, sorry, no, it's not going in this journal. I mean, I know some reviewers feel like that too, but once something goes to peer review, it's much more likely to eventually get published. And so the real service is for the authors of that paper, giving them feedback, improving the paper. It's probably going to eventually get published. So you're putting the work into it. Yeah. So Drew, you mentioned there about, you know, once it goes out for peer review, it's it's probably likely to get published. It's been through two editing filters before it goes out for peer review. So does that mean people can trust peer reviewed articles having gone through, you know, a couple of editorial rounds and uh, a couple of peer review rounds? Is that enough for for practitioners to be able to trust what's in there? So it definitely is something. And by something, I mean that every peer reviewer is looking at the work, trying to say, are the conclusions of this paper justified? And that's really important that when we're doing academic work, particularly when we're making conclusions that are going to impact safety practice, that we at least are willing to have other people check our work before it gets, before it gets put out into the world and we start making claims your claims about what is the most important risk on a construction site, claims about what are methods that work and doesn't don't work. And I think the fact that we know that peer review is happening definitely improves papers. 
you know, David, you and I have had long conversations on papers that we've published together about what the peer reviewers are going to say and adjusting the paper to make sure that we are getting it ready for peer review that we wouldn't put on a blog post. No, and you just know now, for example, you, I think you mentioned before we start, Drew, about some of the different types of comments that we've we've had. And I think particularly given, well, all of my research has been qualitative research. and We've talked a lot about qualitative research and occasionally you'll get, you know that you're going to get peer reviewers that think that research is quantitative and research needs to involve numbers and surveys. And then you say, I've done, I've done interviews with eight people and here's my paper. And you know that reviewers are going to say that sample is not big enough. How can you make anything generalizable because of that? So we know in those papers that we need to put a big section in the introduction that explains qualitative research and just why this particular research design is appropriate for this research question. And you're right, Drew, you wouldn't put that in a blog post, but you know you need to spend a couple of hundred words in a journal paper just to prevent that sort of peer review rejection. So, so the existence of peer review means that anything that's going out for peer review has been revised and edited many more times than anything that doesn't go out for peer review. And that editing process definitely improves it. But the quality of the peer review step itself is very, very variable. There's the whole online meme, and I would recommend looking it up if you haven't, about reviewer number two. Every academic has had this experience of getting review comments back, which are just terrible. Terrible because they're nasty or because they're unfair or because they don't really understand the paper or they just ask the authors to do lots of kowtowing to a particular theory or to cite a particular piece of work. Or basically ask the authors, you, why did you write this paper and not this other paper I would have preferred you to write? Um, so there's, you know, a Facebook group reviewer number two must be stopped. There's you know, picture memes about killing reviewer number two. I think there's a downfall video. I think in the downfall video, it's called reviewer number three. There's a whole piece of peer reviewed research about whether it is in fact reviewer number two who's the bad one. And it came to the conclusion that no, it's more often reviewer number three who's the bad one. Oh, there you go. I haven't seen that before, Drew. I'm gonna. That's going to give me something to look up later on. So, um, so cool. So, so, so anyone can be a peer reviewer and get involved. Then, so we've got a paper now. It's um, it's it's been peer reviewed. It's about to kind of be be published. Does it matter which journal? Because authors have an have an option of where they send their papers to. Like you got, you can send it to on any given paper that we write. There's potentially a dozen different journals which, um, the paper would be in scope of. So. Does it matter which journal you send your paper to? So it 100% matters to us. So uh, academics keep score based on where things have been published and how many times they've been cited. And so some journals are more prestigious than others. And you can generally assume that if something's been published in one of the more prestigious journals, that it was harder to get it in. And that harder to get it in doesn't guarantee that it's better. But it does mean that the authors thought that this was their best work that should go to that place. It does mean that you'd know that the editors aren't scrambling to find things to publish. So the editors would have had no you know, worries about rejecting it, whereas like a struggling journal will accept stuff just because they're needing stuff to get in. But it shouldn't be sort of within a pool of reputable journals. You should treat everything pretty much the same. So, you know, just because safety science is a more prestigious journal with a higher impact factor than cognition technology and work doesn't mean that, oh, this was published in CTW, so it's a bad paper. 
So Drew, you mentioned impact factor there. Do you want to give the the 30 second um, overview of, because that's something that, again, journals take fairly seriously. I know I attended a meeting um, of Safety Science Associate uh, editorial board with with you and, you know, the movement of impact factors was something that was taken very seriously by, you know, the editorial board. So what's um what's an impact factor? Okay, uh, impact factors are total bunk. I just need to make that very clear before I explain how they're calculated. Impact factors are like university rankings. They are the most nonsense of nonsense. So here's how you calculate the impact factor of a journal. You take the number of things that have been published in that journal, and you take the number of times things in that journal have been cited, and then you divide the number of total citations to the journal by the number of things that have been published. So Drew, if I've got a, if I'm a journal with an impact factor of five, that just means on average, every paper in this journal gets cited by another paper five times. No, it does not. Okay, there you go. <laughs> and here, here is the thing. Do, doing average calculations assumes all sorts of things. It assumes that we can't manipulate the numerator or the denominator, whereas we absolutely can. So journals can manipulate how many things in their journals make it into the count and try to lower the number of things that get counted. Journals can also manipulate the number of things that get, number of citations that their papers get. For example, by having policies where they reject things that don't have a high ratio of citing their own journal. Now, if a journal is too blatant about this, then they lose their impact factor. But that's just really sort of if they get caught being too blatant. You know, every journal tries to manipulate their impact factor. And the big, big one that everyone knows about is that literature reviews get cited far more than any other type of article. So a journal can manipulate its impact factor through what is a totally legitimate publishing practice of encouraging lots of literature reviews and discouraging other types of articles that are less likely to get cited. There, there is no way to use any sort of metric to judge the score of a journal. And the biggest thing about impact factors is the majority of papers get one or zero citations. So that impact factor does not describe a typical article at any journal. And that's the biggest thing is it says nothing about any particular paper. But I, I do, and this might be the wrong thing to do, Drew, I'm interested in your opinion. When I'm, even when I'm looking for papers for um, us to talk about on on the podcast here, or when I'm looking at doing my own research, and you know, if I'm in a database or Google Scholar or or wherever I am, I'll actually look at, and Google Scholar is really good like this, under every single paper, it actually says how many citations this particular paper has. And if you see a paper with seven, eight, nine hundred citations, you go, okay, this is a this could be a fairly um, useful paper in this particular area, as opposed to seeing something with two citations that's five years old. So I'd say citations are perfect for our selecting things for the podcast, because the number of citations a paper has received is an indication of how much attention it has gathered. And so if we're looking for what is an interesting thing to talk about, something that lots of people have already talked about is probably something that's interesting to talk about. You know, there are things worth saying about that paper. But you'd also know, David, that very often we've found things that have been cited heaps. We look at it and we think, this is useless, um, just because the quality of the paper is so low. Yeah. Or it's an easy it's an easy site for people. It's already been cited a lot of times. It's on this topic. So without doing the grunt work, it just gets cited. It just continually gets cited in relation to that topic. The authors put a sentence in the abstract that says something that lots of people need a citation for. 
oh, I haven't thought of that. That's um, Chasing numbers doesn't do anything for my career anyway, so um, I don't need to worry about that. Yeah, David, I don't know if I've mentioned this on the podcast. Uh, my particular specialty when I was doing my PhD is a technique called fault trees. And there is a foundation paper in fault trees that was written in 1965 and has been cited a huge number of times. I have never until very recently, because it got put online by someone, found a copy of that paper. Until very recently, all the time that there were these hundreds of people citing it, there were only three copies of that paper in existence, all in libraries in obscure places that did not do interlibrary loans. None of the people citing it had even read it. So, Drew, you mentioned a 1965 paper then. So does when something get published matter to us? It matters a lot for a number of reasons. Things that are published now will get rejected when they might have been published back in 1965. So the number of papers that are getting submitted is going up, and they're supposed to be building on what's gone before. So something that has been published earlier has very likely been superseded by things that are published later. Um, something that is published today can be, not guaranteed, but presumed to be advancing the field beyond where it was previously. And so very recent papers are going to have many fewer citations than very old papers, but they're more likely to be the latest state of the art. If they're done well, they'll have a literature review that summarises all of that later work anyway and puts the new work into that context. Um, the general rule is we aim to cite things and to read things that have been published in the past five years, and we want to be very careful. And you may have noticed, that, sorry, I'm talking to listeners really rather than you, David, <laughs> on the podcast, if anything's sort of older than five years, we'll usually mention that and mention that we've done a check to make sure that it's still the state of the art or still up to date. Yeah, Drew, and so I suppose there's a couple more things, we'll, then we'll dive into some practical takeaways. Uh, so does everything eventually get published? Because I, I haven't had to do it, but I'm aware of a bit of journal shopping that goes on. Someone might get rejected and rather than think about fixing the paper, they might go, okay, I'll actually try this journal next and this journal. And they might try four or five journals before they actually get around to going, okay, it's obvious now that I have to fix this thing before I get it done. But but how, how much um, does everything eventually get published and, and how much kind of journal shopping happens? Journal shopping definitely happens. There's more pressure on some people to publish than others. And if there's a lot of pressure on you to get stuff published, as say, for example, a lot of Chinese academics have got numbers of papers every year they have to publish. A lot of Indian students have to publish two papers before they get their degree or they're not given their master's degree. And so those people have just got huge pressure to get something published. If it gets rejected from one place, they will immediately send it to another place. For authors with less pressure, Usually, if something gets rejected from one place, you will at least edit it before you send it somewhere else, unless you think that it was rejected unfairly, in which case you might just immediately say, well, that journal didn't want it, let's just try somewhere else. Particularly if you get no so how, feedback, um, you know, it just gets desk rejected, you're very likely to just send it to somewhere else. And I suspect the uh, the blatant version of journal shopping, which um, I have seen once, at least once, is when the uh, the actual cover letter that goes into the journal has still got the previous journal's name on the cover letter. I'll tell you the most blatant version of journal shopping that I've seen was I sent a paper out to a peer reviewer who came back and said, this paper has plagiarized my work. And so I rejected the paper and sent a complaint off to the author's university. I got a very irate email from the reviewer two weeks later because the person had sent the plagiarized paper straight off to another journal who had sent it to the same peer reviewer. <laughs> 
who is now seeing her plagiarized work for the second time. Oh, wow. Um, and this is the danger in journal shopping is there's a limited pool of good peer reviewers out there. And it's not like peer reviewers get paid. It's not like they belong to a journal. And so for people who journal shop, there is a real risk, particularly in like small subfields, that it will just go out to the same peer reviewers. Um, and that's sort of like the kiss of death on a paper if a reviewer says, I have already rejected this from another journal and it has not been changed. The editor sees that. They're just going to uh, reject yeah, the paper and possibly blacklist the authors. Yeah. No, that's... So, Drew, is there anything else you want to want to talk about before we talk about practical takeaways? You had a note here about academics keeping score, and we've mentioned number of papers published, we've mentioned citations, we've mentioned impact factors. But how do you, I suppose as a career academic, how do you get judged by the university in relation to publishing and journal articles? So universities expect their academics to publish. It's one of the things on our KPIs as employees. And it has a big impact on things like when we apply for grant money from government agencies, having publications and having those citations for those publications matter. It's a big thing in promotions, how many papers we've published since our last promotion, how many times they've been cited. So for that reason, a lot of our publishing we do for ourselves. So we don't publish because we want something to get to an audience. We publish because we would like to have a publication. And so that's, I guess, important because that perverse incentive means that a lot of the stuff that gets published in journals, no one actually cares whether practitioners read it or not. And that's one explanation for why often papers don't have clear academic, clear takeaways in them, why they're written badly, why the whole system doesn't give easy access to papers, is because it's not that academics don't want their stuff to be read, don't want their stuff to be used. Those are KPIs as well. But very often the reason for publishing is its own right. You, know, it's, you have a gold star, you've got a publication in safety science. Um, in fact, I mentioned your university rankings before. Those are often based off number of publications in certain pre very prestigious journals. So, Drew, we've talked about, um, I suppose, what a journal is. Uh, you know, anyone can be an author, submit it, the editorial filtering process, peer review, and I've got my paper. It's been published now. I, I want to be looking at the recency of that and, and where it's been published. But what are, the, what, are the, what are some practical takeaways our listeners? Um, hopefully this has been interesting for our listeners to just understand a bit more about the journal publishing process. But, but what are some practical takeaways for our listeners? So I was trying to think what would be like genuinely useful for practitioners to know. Now, I guess the first one is the way to use publication as a way of telling who is an expert and who isn't. So obviously, you, I think we've sort of added a little bit of dirty laundry here. Publication in a peer-reviewed journal, think of it as like the minimum standard but not as a very high bar. So there's lots of reasons why there might be something which is good work that hasn't been published yet. But if anyone is consistently holding themselves out as an expert, but they're not willing to ever take that step of submitting their work to the rigorous scrutiny of their peers, doesn't matter how many other people they cite in their work, if they're not going to have their own work put for peer review and studied and scrutinied, and accept that feedback, accept that criticism, revise, respond, then you should be very suspicious of them holding themselves out as an expert. Yeah, I think, Drew, we talked about way back, it might have been episode one or two when we talked about behavioural safety. I think that was one of the very early conclusions that we drew in terms of all the debate and discussion where which people have in that space. The actual Who the actual authors are and the number of papers and the studies doesn't match up for a lot of the people holding themselves to be at it to be experts one way or the other. Yeah, and I mean, you can, you can criticise the academic ecosystem all you like and criticise academics living in an ivory tower, 
But it's one of the sort of like really good disciplines that academia has is that we test our stuff, we put it out there, we scrutinize each other, we're willing to be criticized. And it very much is. I mean, I, papers that, that I put years into, Drew, I suppose, during my PhD and and worked up. And I mean, these, like you said, they're long processes, 10, 12,000 words, and you send it out and someone strips your name off it so that it, it could be, no one knows who it's written by and sends it out to two very experienced, generally, academics. And it comes back with pages and pages of comments and you kind of got to suck it up and, and make changes. But I think it is... Um, Every single peer review paper that I've published, I've felt like the paper's been better at the end of the peer review process. Yeah, no, I would absolutely agree with that with my own work. Second takeaway is that beyond a certain point, the way academics keep score is really irrelevant to professionals. And so, you know, just because we take it seriously doesn't mean that you have to. And by the way we keep score, I mean things like number of papers that we've published and number of times they've been cited. And that that's really just our own point keeping. So I don't know what the sweet spot is. In safety, it's probably anyone with more than about 10 papers I would consider an absolute expert. Anyone with a couple of hundred citations is basically considered an expert in their field. When people have more than that, they say, I have 50 papers, 100 papers, 200 papers. That just really says they're good at manipulating the system and keeping score. It doesn't mean that they're any deeper an expert. Um, If anything, it means that they're very focused on publishing rather than on making sure each individual piece of work is really interesting and high quality. And David, you'll notice I very carefully drew that number so that I fall on the right side of it. <laughs> I think you very carefully drew that number so that um, I'm pretty close to falling on the right side of that as well. But um, but look, I mean, and there are there are even, I think, episode 24, we had um, Dave Woods um, on, on the podcast. And I think he's, you know, there's someone with, you know, hundreds of papers and like 30 or 40,000 citations or something like that. Um, so... Yes, I think there is there is some people in our field who have been at this for, for four decades and have got a lot of work under their belt. Yeah, I mean, p- people who've got those huge numbers, they are the rock stars of our field. Um, but often the way to get those is to run a successful lab and have lots of other people working for you and doing the work. So yeah, most rock stars also own their own labs, have researchers working for them, PhDs working for those. There's a little bit of a that pyramid scheme going on where the people who sit at the top certainly get the citations. Oh, very good. Okay, so the next takeaway is, you know, I mentioned peer review was the minimum barrier. It's a very low bar. It's it's not that it's not hard to get something published. It's that stuff slips through the cracks all the time. And so you can't just assume because it's past peer review that it's one of the good ones rather than one of the ones who slipped through the crack. So that's why you should never totally trust a single paper. And there's sort of two strategies. One of them is that you scrutinize the individual papers really carefully. The other is just don't trust single papers full stop and do do things like looking for literature reviews that summarize the body of work rather than relying on any single paper. Yeah, I think, Drew, I even even find that when we look at papers for the podcast here as well. I think when we looked at you know, topics like safety culture a couple of episodes back and things like that, I can pick up a, a single paper on a study like that and see six or seven pages of statistics and not really make head or tail of how significant something is. So even, you know, even I find I'm, I'm much better off going and picking up a, a literature review on, on the, you know, on safety culture broadly and just seeing how the narrative goes through the literature review and what the bulk of the studies suggest rather than the individual study. I know we've got some academic and student listeners, so I'll give one bonus takeaway, which is that for students, 
A good way to do it is if you find a paper you like, search for something that says the exact opposite. And if you find that there is something that says the exact opposite that looks just as good as the one that says what you're going to cite, then that's the time you know you've got to dig deeper because you've now got two reputable things pointing both directions. You've got to work out what the true situation is. Which happens a lot in our field, Drew, because it happens a lot in, in social science, I think. Yeah, there are still consensus on topics. But yeah, if, if there's two good papers pointing either way, it's definitely a sign that the answer is not as easy as you thought it was the first time. Final one, and this sort of gets into invitation to the listeners as well, is, David, I haven't actually checked before the podcast if you agree with this one, but I think that as professionals, we all should be in the habit of reading at least some original research work. doesn't have to be a lot, but it's a good idea and a good discipline to always be looking at what that cutting edge is being published. Yeah, I, look, I definitely agree with that, um, Drew, and I think that's happen happening you know, increasingly now. I spent various parts of my career over the last 20 years or so where I spent years and probably didn't read any original research. But now you know, I'll do a webinar with someone and mention a couple of our papers, for example, and I'll have you know, dozens of LinkedIn messages asking for copies of, of papers, which you know, for our listeners is perfectly fine as an author for me to share a private version of a, of a paper. So you know, lots and lots of people reach out you know, in the interest of actually reading the, the original research. And you know, I think you, you mentioned their reading clubs as well or journal clubs. I've also you know, joined in a couple of virtual journal clubs uh, lately to, to talk about some papers. And I know there's groups of professionals getting together and you know, reviewing papers within their organization or across organizations and then coming together and talking about them. So invitation to the listeners. We're really quite curious just how many people do that. We, we, we can obviously know when people directly reach out to us, but we'd be interested in any of you who are out there making a point of reading some of the papers we talk about on the podcast, either by yourself or as part of a reading club. And for our academic or student listeners, uh, very keen to hear about your good and bad experiences with journals and peer review. And certainly don't hesitate to tell me why you don't publish in Safety Science because we take too long to review stuff. So, Drew, um, that's it for this week. Uh, next week, we're at episode number 50. So I think just for our listeners to tune in next week, we're going to actually talk about the original paper, Safety Work versus the Safety of Work, which was the inspiration for this whole podcast thing that we've been at for about a year now, Drew. So did you think we'd get this far? Uh, to be honest, I'm amazed we've managed to keep up the every single week schedule so far. Yeah, it's been pretty close a few times, but we've done well. So we hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. Join us on LinkedIn or send any comments, questions or ideas for future episodes to feedback at safetyofwork.com. 